Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. Hello, I'm Michael Richard, and welcome to another edition of Fireside FileMaker. Today we have a special guest, Bob Shockey, from the Alchemy Consulting Group. And I'm going to let John Mark Osborne tell us more about our guest. Hi, my name is John Mark Osborne, and I've known Bob for quite a while. I don't hang out with him on the weekends or anything, but I've known him for a good 20 years. And whenever I think of Bob, I think of calm, cool, and collected. He's always centered when I talk to him which is important for anyone who works with clients all day long. So I started researching Bob for this interview and, you know, Googling and things like that. I was amazed at how many things he's accomplished in his career, including DevCon speaking, article authorship, FM disc, president of a FileMaker development company. Uh, He's a platinum FBA member. There's so many things here. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but we're going to really focus in on process-driven design, which he is a specialist at. And so why don't you say hi to our audience? Hello, everyone, and thank you guys for having me on your show. So how long have you been working with FileMaker, Bob? Uh, Since 1989. uh, I was working in the uh, publishing field. That's where a lot of my training was. I went to trade school a long time ago. I studied communication arts and fine arts uh, in art school. Um, I had worked in publishing and graphics in various capacities before that. And uh, I was um, uh, uh, in art school when I started at the LA Weekly in 1983, when it was in a little two-story house on Sunset Boulevard. Um, And uh, I worked for them... uh, as a typesetter on proprietary equipment from CompuGraphics, I worked as a paste-up artist, which involves uh, cutting out your printed type and arranging it with a T-square, <laughs> waxing the back of it to stick it down, arranging it with a T-square, and a triangle, lots of fun. And uh, um, this is all before desktop publishing. And uh, I also worked in the darkroom there. Uh, which there's a lot of darkroom work involved in that kind of uh, production of newspapers. And then desktop publishing came into usage. And they brought in some Mac 2s. And uh, basically, a lot of my position at the company was being eliminated. And I uh, I took a, a leap and I, I asked the uh, the head of the department if I could take care of the computers. I don't think the term IT specialist existed then, uh, but uh, I uh, was given the shot. I had built an 8088 two floppy computer at one time, and I threw that in there as that made me knowledgeable. And to them, that was like, oh my God, this guy knows everything. So um, I then had to come up to speed very quickly on Macs, and uh, another IT specialist was brought in to help me learn. And uh, he brought in FileMaker, and I don't even know what version of FileMaker it was at that point in time. Uh, it was a little uh, one-screen app for managing classified ads, and it was all radio buttons. And uh, I used it, um, you know, for that, and I, I found out I could modify it, and that was amazing. And uh, right away, I just knew that okay, this is a tool that I can use for a lot of different things. And I kept it in my toolbox and did use it for a lot of other things uh, over the years at the LA Weekly. Um, you know, one of the things I did was uh, I worked with uh, Quark Express. Do you guys remember Quark Express? It was a page layout program. 
Yeah, I was a page maker guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I knew Cork was better, but page maker was uh, for us amateurs. So, right, right, yeah. Um, uh, Quark was uh, kind of a steroids version of that, and uh, really a, a, a great piece of software from a company that I don't think was managed very well. But um, you know, otherwise, I think it would have dominated, continued to dominate that industry. But uh, it didn't. But at the time, it was definitely hands-on the 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 one that everybody used for serious production of printed material, and um, it had this uh, Express Tags language. Um, that it used, uh, that, which was for sort of transforming information uh, as it's imported into Cork. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's almost a plain English kind of thing, but um, you know, these tags are very specific about making things bold, putting rules in, column widths, all these different parameters that you need, kind of like CSS in a way, um, long before CSS existed. And, um, and we had to uh, take this ancient, these ancient classifieds that were or these classifieds that were collected on an ancient B-Treve computer system, and transform them into these tags. And guess what? FileMaker was a perfect tool for that. And so we were able to flow information straight from this classified system into uh, the uh, Quark Express pages in a matter of seconds. And, and uh, so that was one of the really powerful things I was able to do early on. So I really fell in love with it. I really understood, you know, this is a tool that's going to help me probably many more times in my career. And uh, so then I left the LA Weekly after 14 years and I moved into uh, management in a visual effects studio called CFC and a computer film company. They were one of the first visual effects studios, actually. They started in London and then they moved to Hollywood. Uh, or opened a Hollywood branch. And uh, I heavily used FileMaker in my role there because one of the big problems that they had was tracking shots through the VFX process. Um, and uh, what that means is, uh, you know, everything's a shot, whether it's two seconds long or three minutes long or whatever, they call it a shot. And it's simply, you know, a bunch of actors in front of a blue screen or a green screen a lot of the time. And maybe there's a wire removal because you made somebody fly or there's, uh, you know, some other visual effect. You're making, you know, a statue look like it's moving or whatever. And uh, we needed to know where they were. We needed to know what was going on with these shots. And uh, so um, I worked with some of the techs there and they created a, a crawler that would crawl over the whole network and find where all these shots were based on very strict naming conventions. And, and then it would return to me a report that I could import into FileMaker and give everybody a complete view of what was going on and where these shots were. And depending on who had them in their possession at that time and was working on them, uh, they would, um, we would know like what the status of that thing was. So um, that saved the producers a lot of time. They were able to pay attention to more important things instead of running around saying, where's my shot? Where's my shot? And, uh, um, it was a big success. So again, you know, I was able to use FileMaker to just solve big problems really easily. Not really easily. I mean, it was a lot of work, but still, you know, um, easy, more easily than it seemed like it would be possible to do. And uh, I did that again for Pack Title Mirage, which was another visual effects company that's not around anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, I did kind of the same thing for them. And so... Uh, it was a it was a really um, really big eye opener for me about what the power of FileMaker was uh, to be able to do all those things. 
Go, going completely away from FileMaker for a second, Bob, with your background, do you find it staggering how far visual effects have become have come in the last 15 years? Stunning, stunning. Um, amazing, amazing things uh, uh, have happened with visual effects. And, and there are some people in the visual effects industry who I don't think get a whole lot of attention you know um you know when, when you go to see a movie like say the avengers you know you've got or star any star wars movie and you know you, if you stick around for the credits you've got you know maybe 10 visual effects studios with all of their people listed well guess what those visual effects studios don't get to list even everybody who works on that stuff they they get a certain number of names. You know, you get ten names, you get twenty names, or whatever. And there might be fifty people in that studio who worked on that. And the producers just have to decide who they're going to include and who they're not going to. Um, you know, based on their importance to the process. So, but it, it's it's really incredible what I see them doing now. Um, and you can even, God, I just I just looked at a thing the other day that I downloaded. Um, can't remember the name of it now, but it's an app that will take a photograph and make a person in the photograph look like they're talking, you know, or singing a song. And it moves their mouth and moves their head around and moves their eyebrows up and down and opens and closes their eyes. And, you know, and that's just a thing for your iPhone. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible what you can do these days. And, and, and I'm really proud of the people I worked with, too. Um, I should mention that... Uh, uh, one person I worked with quite a bit at CFC, that first visual effects studio, uh, his name is Yannick Sers. He was the visual effects supervisor on the first Avengers movie, and he got an Oscar wow. for that. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm, I'm just so happy to see him succeed because he's a great guy and super smart, like just brilliant visual effects producer, uh, supervisor, excuse me. And, uh, yeah, um, truly, uh, yeah, I, I love a good visual effects movie. I really do. Me too. Yeah, I'm there with I'm there with you on that one. I think Avatar was for me was the the first movie where I was just so blown away by the effects I had to go and see it again. Avatar was a big leap forward, I think. Um, and they, they introduced a lot of things that everybody else likes to imitate. Like, um, like one of the things that really stood out for me because, um, it was about technology, you know, the industry I'm in was, uh, all of those, uh, screens that were just clear and you could see through them and see the people standing behind them, but then they would have data, you know, flowing across them at the same time. I think they were the first ones to introduce that. And it now shows up everywhere. Like you see it in almost every futuristic film of any kind, you know? Yeah. I, I loved Avatar as well. And I took my wife to see it in the movie theater and about an hour in, she's all, when's this movie going to be over? <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's about three hours long. She was so mad at me. <laughs> so you've been in a lot of places before doing FileMaker, you know, you were, you FileMaker was a part of those jobs, but when did you actually start Shocky Solutions? And then how did it become the Alchemy Consulting Group? Um, yeah, I, I, I was working in the visual effects industry, like I said, and, and, uh, and I was quite happy there. Uh, it's a great industry to work in, by the way. Um, great people. I had a lot of fun. Um, got to be part of, you know, the Hollywood scene. I met, famous people sometimes. And, 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 uh, you know, it was, it was just, it was just cool, you know? And, um, 
Then the industry kind of collapsed or it went through a mini collapse, I guess you could call it. There was a threatened writer's strike in 1998 and 99 uh, that it dragged on for a really long time. The strike never actually happened, but every project in Hollywood got red lighted. And so suddenly, you know, all these studios, not just visual effects studios, but studios in general had no revenue. And uh, ours was no different. And I, along with a lot of other people, got laid off. Uh, and so I left CFC. That's why I left CFC and went to pack title Mirage, uh, was there for six months, completely revolutionized that studio. And then boom, guess what? We ran out of money again. And, uh, so I said, screw this. I don't want to work in this industry anymore. Uh, it's just too unstable. I can't, you know, support my family with this. So, um, I, uh, decided to, uh, um, well, for a while, I, I took my FileMaker chops and I, I went to work for uh, HRL, that's Hughes Raytheon Labs out in Malibu and, and uh, um, beautiful campus out there. Um, got to make that really long drive every day working through an agency. And I wasn't making very much money doing that. The agency makes all the money when you take that kind of job. And I was working with all these other contractors from like independent IT firms and, and people who just work for themselves. And they were making, you know, way more money than I was making. And I realized, okay, I'm not doing this right. I need to start my own business. And so I did. I didn't get to work for HRL doing that, but I did pick up some other jobs fairly quickly. And uh, including a university, a new university that was just getting its legs under it. Um, and that was CSU Channel Islands is one of my very first clients. And uh, so I was able to get things rolling and, and uh, you know, it was a little dicey at first. But um, the, the great thing about it is that my wife was so supportive of me doing this. And she had grown up with her parents running a business. So she knew uh, what's involved and the amount of sacrifice that's involved. And she was on board anyway. She supported me doing it um, through the whole thing and, and never complained. Uh, so I owe her a lot of credit for being successful at doing that. Um, and so then, uh, you know, Shockey Solutions went along for a number of years. I worked for, um, I worked for Dave Knight as a contractor sometimes, um, back when he was running D-Works. I uh, learned a lot from him, uh, learned a lot about the business, learned a lot about just, you know, programming in general and having, you know, good practices and so forth. And, uh, uh, so, um, you know, then I, you know, gained enough clients of my own that it wasn't really necessary to, to sub for anybody anymore, or at least not as much. And, uh, then in 2007, I realized I don't want to be a sole proprietorship. There's actually, you know, there's some liability involved in what we do. Um, you know, there's some exposure, not a whole lot, but there's some. And I decided I wanted to, uh, have an LLC. And at that point in time, um, I was considering maybe partnering with another individual. Um, we decided not to do that, but we started tossing around some company names and, uh, Alchemy Group, not Alchemy Consulting Group at the time, but just Alchemy Group came up. Um, I was interested in Alchemy. I'd actually written a novel, which is still actually published, um, on Amazon as a, in a digital version only, but I'd actually written a novel in which Alchemy was one of the uh, components of that it was it, it took place in the 14th century and uh, 
so Alchemy Group just popped into my head, and that's what I went with when I started my LLC. And uh, turned out there was already an LLC called Alchemy Group, so I had to change it to Alchemy Consulting Group in order to, um, uh, you know, be. You, know, you can only have one corporation with each name of a type, so. You know, I could have probably been Alchemy Group Incorporated if I wanted to be a C Corp, but that's not what I did. And uh, then it turns out that after I started Alchemy Consulting Group, two other Alchemy Consulting Groups popped up. Two other companies named themselves Alchemy Consulting Group. So there you go. Um, not not all that unique. Uh, you might see a spike in your your Amazon book sales after this uh, interview goes. Uh, but I didn't name the book. Oh, <laughs> Bob Shockey, though, they know who you are. <laughs> or is it under a pseudonym? A, a slight variation on the name. It, it, I, I'll, uh. just, I'll just tell you, it's, the <laughs> book is called Alex of Dreams, and Alex is spelled with an I, not an E, A-L-I-X of Dreams, and it's by B. Clifford Shockey. Uh. And uh, um, read it at your own peril. Um, I, I thought it was pretty good at the time. Uh, I don't know if it holds up. <laughs> I wrote it back in between like 1995 and 2000. So, well, I, I don't think scriptology holds up anymore either. So don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't think any of us hold up that much anymore. <laughs> Technical books are tough. They're only going to hold up for a short time, right? And then they're they're obsolete. Well, yeah, and this so, is a discussion we've had recently and quite frequently about how books really have sort of gone out of fashion, especially when it comes to stuff like Farmaker, because the, it moves forward so fast that a book's out of date long before it's even published. Yeah, um, I think that's true. I mean, is there even a FileMaker Pro Bible anymore? I don't think there is. Um, I think Sue Prosser wrote the last one. Um and uh, um, yeah, I don't. I don't even know of any filemaker books anymore. There's a couple out there, but yeah, there, it's not like before where you had like a dozen to choose from. Right, I had them all. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I mean that was the only way to learn back then. There was no blogs and things like that. Now, let me ask you, how many people, if you don't mind me asking, do you employ uh, at this moment? Um, there's, I have four people besides myself, so there's five of us all together. Um, I've had as many as six people working under me, um, but we're, we're down to four right now, um, which is a, a pretty comfortable team size. I have a couple of contractors helping with some surge business right now, but um, basically they're comprised of um, one director of development, who's also a developer, uh, two developers, and one QC tester who also doubles as an office manager. Um, and uh, that's that's a pretty good team size for me. I, um, when I start to get more people than that, I find that uh, things get a lot more uh, difficult um, just in general. Um, you know, the you know, I, I've heard people talk about, you know, the leap from one employee to five is, is a big one. And then from five to 10 is another big one. And, and I don't know if I ever want to get to even 10 employees, you know, it, it um, I think, uh, I think there's more headaches involved with having that many people working for you. But um, I will tell you that the one thing that I will always have, and the very first employee I ever hired was the QC tester and office manager. Um, more than anything else, that was uh, 
a, a huge change for me. Um, having someone who actually is looking at your code, who doesn't know how to write code and is looking at it and trying to break it is so immensely valuable. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, that having that. Do, do most, uh, it, from your knowledge, do most FileMaker development companies have a software quality assurance person on staff? No, surprisingly, only some, uh, and probably a minority. Um, uh, I think I think more FileMaker development companies have project managers before they have QC testers, and and I would. I, I would be willing to uh, have a spirited debate over that one um, and even to lose on that one. But, um, uh, you know, I do my own project management and other people help with it and people manage their own projects after a certain point in time. Um, but, uh, you know, th the way we have things kind of broken up is that uh, we have myself and my director of development, Mark Kimbrell, um, we do discovery with the clients. And actually that QC tester sits in too. And she generally doesn't ask any questions or say anything, but she's there listening to all of the discovery sessions as well, which are recorded by the way. Um, we always record them. And uh, so when it comes around time for her to do the QC testing, she's not doing it completely blind. She has an idea of what the goals are. She knows the problems that the client is trying to solve with the things that we're building for them. So. Um, you know, it's, it all, it all works out that way. Um, you know, once, once we get that discovery process finished, then, um, you know, the developers are able to take over and do some of the management themselves, um, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And then we kind of are able to have an umbrella of, you know, the project managers who actually did the discovery on top of that you know, keeping things coherent and, and on track. Very interesting. I, yeah, I have not heard of anybody who has software quality assurance on staff. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting. My, my daughter just got an SQA job at Apple and we were talking about it today and she's all, you should mention me on the podcast. Well, you, you just walked me right into it. So <laughs> I mean, it was like, Oh, I, I should mention her. Um, so we're very proud of her and uh, she's going to be moving up North, which brings me to my next question. Where are you guys located? You're in the LA area and in what industries are you involved in? So we're in the San Gabriel Valley. Um, we're in a, a little town out here called Laverne, which is uh, right next to Claremont where the Claremont colleges are. So pretty well-known and prestigious uh, schools, um, the Claremont Colleges. Uh, and where the Claremont Craft Brewery is. Yes, a very decent brewery. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, actually there's, there's quite a few out here. There's Laverne Brewing Company too, by the way. Um, yep. And uh, um, they're, they're actually right up the street from me. If I could throw a rock over the uh, airport that's between us, um, I could hit them. Um, anyway, yeah, so... Um, we're uh, we're actually in some industrial buildings down here by the airport, um, which is great. Um, we get to see and hear helicopters taking off on and off through the day. Um, and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek because they're super loud. Um, but anyway, um, we uh, you know I started out in LA. I, I um, when I met my wife, I lived in Silver Lake. We lived in in my house for about five years after we were married, and then moved out here which is closer to her job because she teaches in Covina. But um, anyway, uh, 
it's it's a nice quiet little community and it's still close enough to LA and everything else that um, you know uh, I can get around when I need to more and more stuff being done remotely these days uh, but um, as far as industries um, to answer your other question um, you know we try not to nail ourselves down to any particular industry. You hear a lot of FileMaker people say this, I think a lot of developers say, you know, I can build you anything. Um, what we pride ourselves on is really learning a business on a deep level and really understanding how they get things done. And uh, so we work in a lot of industries. Uh, manufacturing is my favorite. I just really enjoy automating things for manufacturing, but contractors, contracting services, um, child services, education, business service providers, telecom, fine art studios, um, industrial auto services, um, medical supplies and services. I've worked in all of these and more. Um, you know, one client I had years ago was an assayer's office in downtown LA and they tested precious metals. I learned all about how that works. You know, that's, that's the great thing about this, this business, right? You, you learn so much about how things get done and, you know, what our infrastructure looks like and how, how people think about things from the other side of the fence. You know, if you're, if, if you test precious metals day in and day out, your take on, on their value and, and on, on what's important about them and, you know, is, is completely different from if you're someone who trades precious metals. So, uh, you know, really interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I would have to say I know more about uh, how weddings occur in Jap Japan than anybody else in the filemaker <laughs> industry right now. Uh, and it, it is actually, it's, I'm, I'm being a little funny, and a, but a little serious at the same time, because it actually is quite interesting how things work over there, because you think of how a wedding goes on over here. Uh, it's completely different, how they set it up, how they do it. It's, it's yeah, the things you learn. Uh, about different industries because you have to learn that industry in order to develop that solution. You may not know as well as your client, but you have to be pretty good at it to design a solution. You have to understand where they're coming from. You know, it's, inter it's interesting you mentioned Japanese weddings because um, back in the early 80s, I lived in Hawaii for a while and I went down to, on Oahu and I went down to Hawaii Kai, which was a famous beach there where you could snorkel and see fantastic fish. And I was just taking a nap, and all of a sudden I heard this thrumming noise that was just deafening, and I, and I sat up, and there were at least 50 Japanese couples who had all gone to Hawaii to get married at the same time. And they were having their lunch, and while the man was eating the lunch, the woman was flexing the lid of the of the packed lunch to give to fan her husband. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, different cultures are, are definitely different, and you got to respect them, um, even though it may may be a little strange for you. And, and John, you've now thrown down the gauntlet. You may realize, you may not, that that by saying that you're the 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 most well versed uh, file maker developer on Japanese weddings, someone's going to step forward now and right. <laughs> school you on how much you don't know about Japanese weddings. Uh, 
And I'm going to yeah. record that conversation. <laughs> well, it probably won't happen on the podcast, but I'm kind of used to I've been in the industry uh, for 30 years. And for most of those years, I've been, you know, speaking at DevCon and things like that. And, and yeah, that, that kind of stuff, unfortunately, happens. Um, you know, most of it's good, but there are a few people like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. They try to dethrone you. So hopefully that doesn't happen here on the Japanese wedding thing, but we'll see. <laughs> So let's talk about DevCon that I just mentioned. It. Uh, I, I know it's hard to remember. I don't remember how many DevCons I've spoken to. I'd have to count out the binders, which are sitting right over there, uh, you know, at least a dozen. Um, you know, and you've also, I believe, spoken at Pause on Air. Uh, tell us a little bit about DevCon and, and maybe some of the interesting things that went on there that you liked, you know, some of the presentations. Anything that comes to mind? Sure. Um I, I have spoken there three times, um, and then I also was once involved in a design panel with Heather Winkle when she was at FileMaker. Um, so I guess that would count a little bit as, as a fourth year. Um, but uh, I've spoken a lot on design. I was speaking on design before anybody thought it was important. Um, uh, you know, and they would kind of grudgingly give me these sessions. Oh, I guess this is interesting. You know, let's, let's find out what he's talking about. But, uh, you know, it, it, people for a long time did not take design seriously. And uh, I have to credit Heather Winkle with really changing the culture, both at FileMaker and within the FileMaker community to bring people around to the importance of design and understanding, you know, just how big of a deal that is. I also spoke on some business issues. Um, I, uh, uh, I once, uh, my, my favorite thing that I ever did was I, uh, I did a top 10 things that will happen if I get hit by a school bus. Um, because I was speaking on that and, you know, a very common question that I, even to this day, people still ask it the same way. What happens if you get hit by a bus, right? Because you know, yep. you know, they're going to depend on us, right? And so I changed it to school bus because it made then my top 10 list a little bit funnier because the number one thing that I got to, and I did it very fast, like in a David Letterman kind of style. And the, the very last one that I got to was um, the last thing to go through my mind, the Bluebird logo. Um, so anyway, um, uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and it got a huge reaction out of the the audience. Um, so uh, that was uh, very gratifying to get that, because otherwise, there's always the danger that you'll put people to sleep. Um, and you know, the most dreaded session you can get at DevCon is the three thirty in the afternoon session on the last day, which I've had uh, at least once. And when you're opposite of Andy LeCate speaking, right? <laughs> speaking at the same time. That's when you got to watch out for, right? <laughs> Andy well, LeCate's or Todd Geist or any of, you know, a dozen others, Wim Court, you know, you don't want to be opposite any of those guys. Right. Bob, did you ever happen to see Chris Manton um, at, do a presentation at DevCon? He did one that I went to and it was on design. It was one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Uh, whose session was that? Chris Manton. Oh, uh, you know, I think I did. I think I did go to that, and it was very entertaining. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was. He was fantastic. There, he was a very yeah. funny guy. He was hysterical. Yeah. Yeah, he speaks funny like like Michael does. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, we speak English and you don't. Well, uh, <laughs> Americans always find everything funnier when it's said with an English accent. That's the conclusion I've <laughs> right? come to. Right. <laughs> 
So yeah, you mentioned Heather Winkle, which she literally changed my life as well, uh, as far as interface design. Uh, not only did she create, uh, basically, was the mastermind behind themes. Um, she also introduced me to grid design, mm -hmm. um, and I use it all the time. And and it it's it's just so simple and straightforward and makes so much sense. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with grid design and why it's important. Yeah. Um it is important. Um, it's, it's a staple of graphic design. Um, and screen design is a branch of graphic design. That's just, that's the bottom line on it. Uh, if you, you know, if you go to a, a large professional, uh, design firm to have your website built at some point, somebody's going to pull out a grid of some kind and they're going to start using it in the background. You may never know about it, but it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it, start, it started with page design. It started with columns and newspapers. It's where it grew from. Um, if you think about it, we're doing the same thing. We're organizing our information, all the little boxes and the labels that go with the little boxes and the radio buttons and the pictures and whatever else we're putting on the page or on the screen. You know, we're, we're trying to organize it in a manner that makes sense. And a grid helps you do that. Now, some people might be thinking right now about a grid that looks like graph paper. If you've never really delved into this subject, that's not what we're talking about. Um, typically, uh, if you look at a magazine or a newspaper grid, it's a bunch of columns, uh, you know, oblong, tall boxes. Um, and I've spoken on this at DEF CON, by the way, but, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, they arrange all the information in columns, right? And sometimes they might decide, well, this is going to span two columns or three columns, this box for an ad or, or a picture, you know, a photograph or whatever. It, you don't have to keep everything within those columns, but you use those columns as a way to keep your information lined up and making sense and to give the eye a way to flow. And uh, for example, I'm, I'm going to get a little geeky here, uh, but um, you can go online if, if, if you if you search for a thing called a heat map, um, uh, maybe put the word design in your search too, so that it knows kind of what you're talking about. Because otherwise, you'll probably get a lot of hockey uh, maps too. But um, uh, what what you'll see is it'll show you the way people's eyes move. You know, they've put sensors on people's heads and they've watched their eyes move across the page to learn how people access information in the West, because it's going to be different if you're in the Middle East or if you're in Japan. But, um, in, you know, in the West, people start at the top left and they move across only for a certain amount of time. And then they decide to go down. And, uh, and then, you know, the other place they spend a lot of time is in the lower right corner of the page. And that's really valuable to know because now you know kind of what your information flow might need to look like when somebody opens up a screen, where do I put my most important stuff? Where do I emphasize, how do I emphasize my information? How do I break it up? And that grid is where you start. Um, now that said, um, you know, you might be thinking about how do I make a grid right now? Most FileMaker developers would, you know, expose your rulers and drag out some guides and maybe even place them uh, according to certain pixel limits so that you can make sure that all your columns are exactly the same size and they're all spaced exactly the same. And that's the way I used to do it. And then I would lock those and then I would make them global. So they showed up on every screen. 
and uh, and that was helpful. And you can snap to those guides, and and that's really nice. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. Those global uh, those global guides are for a certain page size, a certain screen size. But I've got card windows, um, you know, or other smaller windows that may pop up. I might have list views that won't use those same columns. And I realized the way that they're implemented in FileMaker is not great. So instead, what I've started doing, and uh, again, this is something that I've shown before, at, at least to FMDisk, um, but uh, maybe in a DevCon, um, locked rectangle shapes in the background. And you can color them like a light yellow or light blue or whatever color you want to use. And then just um, uh, uh, use the hide function with one as the calculation so they never show in browse mode but they show in layout mode when you're moving things around and you can still snap to them. You will still get cues from FileMaker saying, oh, line up to the left of this or the right. You know, you're lined up to the left of this box or you're lined up to the right of this box. And so then you can design grids that are for each of your different uh, screen sizes. So if you've got a card window that pops up smaller in the middle and you're using that a lot, you might, you know, create a whole set, a whole grid just for that, right? Uh, with fewer columns and and or whatever you know, and then you can do things like you can have a a horizontal header across the top, and then your individual columns below that, because you're always going to have this horizontal area where you read straight across first, and that's what you expect your user to do, and that will aid you in making sure that you're designing things according to whatever set of rules you've designed for your design. Yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. We can't spend our whole podcast talking about grid design, but look it up. It's very easy to find. Uh, look up the heat map you talked about. Uh, anything you can find about grid design will, will allow you as a an easy way to make a good-looking design is what it comes down to. Now, you also spoke at, uh, at DevCon in 2014 about typography and the importance of it in interface design, and I don't think... I've ever heard anybody talk about typography with with such passion, and and I'd like to. It, hopefully, you can impart your passion to other people and make them understand why choosing the right fonts and the right typography and all that stuff makes a big difference in an interface design. Yeah, I mean, well, there's more to typography than choosing the right font. Um, you know, the first thing you have to really be aware of is that you are. Uh, you're trying to impart to the user data hierarchy. And what I mean by that is some of the data is more important than other data. And some of the data is a child of other data. And you need to help people understand that. Helping people understand their data is really what our job is. And this is one of the primary ways that you can do it. So, uh, how big and bold you make something. I mean, this is what, you know, themes and styles are all about, right? But, um, you know, how you use those is really important. So, you know, how, you know, is the most important thing on the screen and the first thing that you want people to read, the biggest, boldest, perhaps most colorful thing on the screen or not? Uh, and other information related to it, is it indented underneath? And is, uh, is some of that information maybe... Uh, italicized or maybe, um, you know, 
however you decide to, to join it to another piece of information, right? And then if you put enough space between that block of information and other blocks of information that are, you know, standalone in their own right and should not be considered to be part of that first block. So the way you organize things, you know, that's a lot of what I spoke about in that session at DevCon is organizing your data. And one of the things that I really tried to drill into people's minds is two points of difference. If you want to differentiate between two data points, you need two points of difference. That can be size and color, that can be boldness and size, it can be indentation, it can be um, you know, whatever combination of those you want, but you need at least two points of difference between two data elements in order to differentiate them from one another in importance or in, uh, you know, in whatever way you're, you're trying to impart to your, your users. Um, so a, a lot of that, you know, I think what I did in that session was uh, I, I took two pieces of data that I wanted to show as being related to one another on the screen. And I started just moving one of them up pixel by pixel and, and I asked the audience to let me know when they thought they had become related to one another on the screen. And it was really interesting because they reached a certain point where it was just about where I would have put it. And almost everybody in the audience who was engaged in this exercise said there at the same time. So there's, there's some kind of uh, a shared schema that we all have that says this is when things fit together and the lesson there was that if it looks good to you it's probably going to look good to other people too uh, type and filemaker is kind of a sore subject with me because we're really limited in the desktop version to a few cross-platform fonts and this is important because you can't count on users not attempting to go cross-platform you can't accept someone's answer just because they say oh we only use macs we don't want any Windows computers. We hate Windows. We don't want Windows. Or the other way around. We only use Windows. We don't allow Macs here, right? At some point, someone with enough clout is going to grab that thing and throw it onto the wrong platform, you know, the one that you weren't expecting, right? So you have to know that the fonts are going to be there. And there's only a few fonts that you can count on being installed at the system level on both OSs, Windows and Mac. Um, you know, there's, there's Verdana, which is pretty horrid font in a lot of ways. Tahoma, which is its uh, prettier cousin. There's Times New Roman. There's Arial, which is a kind of a bastardization of Helvetica. And then there's, you know, fixed with fonts like Courier New. And that's about all you have to work with. Times New Roman is not great either. It's kind of, you know, it kind of died with the, the new, new millennium, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, except maybe for some legal documents or contracts, things like that, maybe. But, um, you know, we're super limited in what we can use. Um, I've done research on this and, you know, you can there are actually sources that I've been able to go to that will tell me how, you know, what fonts were installed on what computers that went to this website or went to this group of websites and it compiles that into percentages of those fonts being available. You know, the odds of those fonts being available on computers. And if you get below like 98%, you're getting into kind of a little bit of a danger area. So uh, that's, that's a, a paltry amount of not very good fonts for us to work with. Um, if anybody's wondering, Tahoma is the one that we've settled on for screen display and Arial for most reports but uh, not great. 
And this has been a problem for more than a decade that people have been really, you know, aware of it and asking for something more. And it, I don't think it would be very hard, honestly, to have a wider range of native fonts available in FileMaker, you know, that get installed with FileMaker or that are encapsulated within FileMaker in some way, um, like web fonts. Um, you know, the reason why so many web pages look as good as they do these days is because of web fonts, partly. And uh, FileMaker has completely ignored this. And I remember I used to, um, I and, and Albert Haram Alvarez once cornered poor Heather Winkle uh, at DevCon and just, you know, gave her all of our opinion about the fonts in FileMaker and begged her to implement web fonts. And she said they were working on it. And uh, that was, of course, you know, uh, something that died with her exit probably and uh, is not being paid attention to at all right now, as far as I can tell. And I think it's terrible because we can't, we can only design up to a certain point and then we just can't make things look better. And we're competing against, you know, web driven systems that are out there that, that are just on the font basis are able to look a lot better than FileMaker. And that's very unfortunate. I tell me who to corner and I'll give it a shot. <laughs> It hasn't. It has not. There, there is nobody who's a, who's a director of design or whatever her her title was. There, um, it's it, it it's fallen back into the hands of the engineers, basically. And and you know, themes and styles is okay the way it is, but that didn't continue to be developed either. And there's a lot of problems with its implementation. Uh, so you know, it uh, you know, I th there are, there's so much to love about FileMaker, and I'm I'm not just sitting here bagging on FileMaker, but I think when it comes to these particular issues, uh, there's just not enough attention being paid. That's all. Mark La Rochelle is a frequent guest on our show, and he wanted to be here today to to participate, but he had some other things he had to do, so he asked me to ask a couple of questions, and so I'm just going to read what he what he put down here, and it says. Mark said, I understand you won the top prize in 2004 for the DevCon Solution Contest. And I believe I still remember being in the audience when that happened. Explain, if you can, what went into, the, into the, that project and what made it unique or special to bring home first place at DevCon. That was quite an experience for me. Um, that was right when FileMaker 7 had just come out. And uh, so it was, a. I think it was maybe one of the largest attend attendances they've had at a DevCon. And, um, you know, I, I decided to throw my hat in the ring for that. And I got selected as one of the finalists. And then I freaked out because at that point I had never spoken at a DevCon. I had done very little public speaking of any kind. And here I was being asked to speak to the entire conference because, uh, you know, all of these, uh, all of the finalists had to had five minutes to demonstrate their uh, their entry to the entire audience at the opening session, and then it was at the closing session that they gave the prize. So I practiced the hell out of it. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe I did well because um, I was terrified and uh, I wanted to do a good job, and I didn't want to screw up. And I actually automated a lot of the user actions with just with FileMaker scripts 
to make it run more smoothly uh, so that I didn't have to flounder around and, you know, be nervous and forget to click a button and then have it go wrong. You know, I, I was, that was my fear. And so, uh, I was able to get through the entire thing, uh, very easily. And, uh, uh, it went as well as I could have hoped. And, um, so I think that had something to do with it, to be honest, is, is that I just really, really polished that apple as much as I could. Um, you know, it was for a nonprofit, so that may have carried some weight in people's voting. I don't know, but um, I don't know that it was really better than any of the other contenders. There's some really good stuff up there in in that session, and and I think anybody could have walked away with it, and and no one would have argued about it. Um, you know, just some really good stuff. But uh, it was thrilling. You know, hey, let's let's uh, let's move on from that, and and this is another one from Mark. Um, he wants to ask about your time uh, at FileMaker Advisor magazine because you used to write for them, and that magazine is no longer available. It's been gone for five or six or seven years, um, longer than I'd, almost a day. It's like time flies. I used to I used to write for them as well, and it was only yeah, it was a print magazine. It was it was it was pretty good. Um, I have no qualms about it. Um, but do you want to? Uh, talk about any kind of articles you wrote there. I mean, it's such a long time ago, but you know, and Mark uh, thinks that you might have uh, some some interesting ideas about blogs and articles you write today as compared to then, or who knows what. Well, I wish I had more time for writing now. I really enjoy writing, um, but most of the time I'm just changing hats and running around like a chicken with my head cut off, just trying to keep my company running and keep everything on track and keep my clients happy. And but. Um, you know, uh, um, in my younger days, I had maybe a little more time and, and, uh, I did write some articles for FileMaker Advisor, which was a great publication. I agree with you. Um, I gleaned some great information out of it back in the day, back when magazines were still a thing, technical magazines were still a thing. Um, and, uh, uh, really liked working with them. Uh, I, I wrote a couple of things that I was really proud of. One of them was on a custom report builder which was a way of uh, basically giving a user a way to arrange uh, their own report with whatever data they wanted and whatever columns they wanted it to show up in. So they could go down through it and choose from drop-down menus. You know, these are all the text fields I want. Here's some number fields I want. Yes, check a box. I want them to add up with a total at the bottom um, and things like that. And they would get, you know, some semblance of a, of a customized report. This is before we had, you know, the, you know, the way we could do now where we can, uh, you know, rearrange the columns, uh, in, in certain views in, in FileMaker. Um, you know, this was written back in like FileMaker probably five or six days. Um, and so it was, uh, it was pretty revolutionary, I thought, and I, I broke down exactly how to do it. So, um, I've, I've had people come up to me over the years and tell me that they actually did use that and were even still using it. So uh, I consider that a success. Um, I wrote another, another uh, article about naming conventions um, where I shared my own naming conventions, the way I was naming fields, relationships, uh, et cetera. And um, w with the admonition that you, know, you don't have to do it my way, but you better have a naming convention in your system. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, uh, that one was pretty well received too. And again, I've had people come to me and tell me, yeah, I use your naming conventions cause it was easier to adopt yours than come up with my own. 
And so, you know, that's, that's kind of fun, you know, to know that you're making some ripples out there. That's interesting. I wrote probably last year a naming conventions article, and I take the same stance as you, is that you just have to have some kind of convention, be consistent. Uh, you know, if you use mine or use somebody else's, I don't care, just just be consistent. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, if, if you're working by yourself, it may not seem that important, but one day you're going to need to work with someone else. You're going to bring in another developer to help you, or you're going to collaborate with someone, and then it becomes absolutely critical. Right. Or even if you're going back yourself, you're just a solo entrepreneur, you know, you're developing solutions by yourself and you go back a year later, two years later, somebody calls up and said, Hey, you worked on the solution. I need some changes. Having a convention that you can follow and go, okay, I know what I'm, you know, it just helps you guide you like a map through, through the solution. Yeah, absolutely. Bob, you wrote a blog article regarding SVG, um, which I know a little about, but I don't know that much about it. So Perhaps you'd like to share some information on that because I know it's kind of important. Um, yeah, um, I've written about SVGs. Uh, I wrote one about, I think, icons as they relate to SVGs um, a few years ago. Um, you know, SVGs are great. They're, they're vector graphics. so They can scale up or down to any size you want. Um, you can color them on the fly in FileMaker, which is great. Um, you know, providing that they're, you know, they're monochrome and you haven't assigned fixed colors to them. And, uh, and they're super easy to work with, with the, you know, the palette that FileMaker provides us, um, for storing them easy to import. Um, you can use SVG Inator from, uh, from Geist Interactive, um, which is a free tool. You just drag your icons in and it immediately sends you a download that's been cleaned up for FileMaker. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're, you know, they, they don't, uh, every pixel doesn't have to be called out. So because they're vector graphics, they're much simpler. They're really just a text file. In fact, you can go in and edit the text file if you want to in something like VB edit. Um, in fact, if I double click on an SVG, it opens in VB edit by default on my Mac. So, um, you know, that's the assumption is that I want to edit it in some way. Um, and uh, in fact, the, um, the SVG article you may be referring to talks about that, about some of the things you might have to do to clean up uh, an SVG. Of course, now with SVG Inator, there's less of that needed, but it's good to know kind of the nuts and bolts of how they work. They're not complicated at all, except for maybe the part that actually describes the graphic itself. That can look pretty up to. So I wouldn't try to edit that part of it, but, um, you know, all the header stuff that's in an SVG is highly editable and, and you can do a lot with it. Um, and they're useful in other ways too. Um, they can be defined inline in HTML for a web viewer and then used to create like variability where you might need it. So I've done things where I needed to have a bunch of boxes of varying widths based on, I think a time frame was, was what I used it for the first time I implemented it. And so I'd have something that was one hour long and something that was three hours long and then something that was two hours long. And I wanted the boxes to be different widths depending on that. And so what I was doing was actually building SVGs inline in a FileMaker calculation and uh, to, to create that. And just in a, a nice skinny web viewer running across a, a row in a list view, and then I could have a different set of boxes in every web viewer in every row in this list view. And that gave me 
the variability that I wanted. And because they're so simple and small, they, they don't take that long to draw to the screen. You know, building a, you know, a thing with a lot of boxes like that on a screen is not uh, processor intensive. So um, they're nice and snappy too. Yeah, I think that's why uh, FileMaker uh, or Claris chose them as the button icons because they can be resized without loss of resolution. They're lightweight, like you said. They're printable. They have so many things. You can add your own SVGs into the to you know into your solution. And and the cool thing about it is like you, you kind of brushed on this, but I want to make sure it's really clear is that you can take conditional formatting if you've used. If you've cleaned, as you said, cleaned up that SVG, put in a little uh, a tag in there for FileMaker, then the conditional formatting can say, hey, when this thing happens, turn this icon green or turn it red or whatever you want. It's, it's really, I mean, I, I think when, when they first came out, I really didn't realize the importance of them. And I think, uh, you know, people are starting to realize how important SVGs are. And I, I, I constantly, for every project, I'm going out and, and searching for SVG icons uh, or regular icons, converting them uh, to SVG and then, and then putting the FileMaker tag in there and use them in there because, you know, it gives you, it's just so flexible when you can make your button any size and it looks good. It's just an incredible uh, format. And I'm glad, uh, you know, that I finally realized how important they were to FileMaker. Yeah, it was a really good decision on the part of FileMaker engineering to go to go with the uh, SVGs uh, instead of you know some kind of uh, well the icons that we were using before that right everything was a PNG you know with a clear background and uh, you know I had a huge database of those by the way that just overnight it became obsolete uh, when SVGs came in because they're just so superior right right so we, we spent a lot of time on some really cool stuff here. I mean, uh, stuff we hadn't necessarily planned on talking about, but that's kind of the way these podcasts go. But I want to get into this. Uh, we have some more questions we might ask you later, but I want to get into the process-driven design and and talk about that because that's really what people are going to see at the talent. needs. We need to cover it, and it's so important, and you're an expert at it. So can you give us like a basic description of what process-driven design is? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's where design has been going for a long time, I think, um, you know, especially when it comes to software. Um, it's built around the user experience. It's, it's uh, you know, user standards are going up all the time. People have been, have become aware of design as a thing that they can understand and care about. Uh, I think that started with Apple and, and the iPhone and uh, has exploded from there. And so their standards are getting higher and higher all the time. And not only that, but um, more and more conventions are being established every day. You know, um, you know, it's fairly recently that we look at three dots, three gray dots to the right of something and understand that we can click on that and we're going to get more information, right? That didn't used to be a standard, but it is now. Um, and so... Um, we have to be really aware of that and we have to be aware of the users that are expecting certain things and have certain expectations. But um, if we build around the user experience, it builds trust with the user because they know that we're building around them. It, it becomes very obvious when you build a good solution that's built around the user experience that you've taken their needs into account and that builds trust, which is a difficult thing in the software business, right? Um, you know, who hasn't had a bad experience with software? Raise your hand. 
Nobody out there listening to this podcast right now is raising their hand because everybody's had a bad experience with a bad piece of software and they've been frustrated and they've felt stupid because they couldn't use the software, right? Because, you know, it's hard not to blame yourself and wonder if am I the problem, right? Because I can't figure this thing out. You're not the problem. The software is the problem. And so, uh, you know, we have a difficult job as developers because we have to overcome that lack of trust that people might have um, towards the software that we're designing for them. So that's one of the ways that you build trust is, is by building around the user. And it also builds an efficiency because you're paying attention to the user and their process. So you are looking for all the inefficiencies in their process and you're curing those if you can. Um, you know, developers tend to build utility screens and I, I'm guilty of this. You know, I did this for a lot of years where you know, it was all about a screen that had all the fields on it with all the information that you need. And then I would go to organizing all those text elements and making them look good and making them, you know, display the information in a way that makes sense. And that was all well and good, but there's more to it than that. Um, you know, you can't just build to the table. You have to build to the process. That's how you orient around the user. That's how you, uh, you know, design. That's, that's how you make the best use of all that time you spend on discovery with your client is by learning their processes, documenting their processes and emulating those processes in your software in a way that makes sense to the user and also doesn't uh, obviate their whole process that doesn't throw what they've been doing out the window because those processes exist for a reason. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, it's not so much about presenting all the information at once, for example, it's about presenting the most important information, then creating progressive disclosure with, um, you know, clicking on a triangle and showing more underneath or by showing information in a card window or by taking them to another screen, which then gives them further, you know, takes them further into the process, whatever's necessary to, to get things moving along. Um, and if you break it all into processes, you really start to break it into people or departments a lot of the time. So, you know, you might have one set of screens that's for one department and you might show much of the same information in a different set of screens for a different department because their processes are different. The things they care about are different. It's the same information, but they can't all share the same screen necessarily. Sometimes they can, but you have to make that determination and act on it accordingly. So, um, you know, when users come to us, they, they tell us about what they want to do, what they want to do, what they want to accomplish, right? My favorite question to ask, what's the problem you're trying to solve? When they tell me the problem they're trying to solve, then there's a process involved in solving that problem. There are steps that need to be taken. So let's, let's look at those steps. Let's look at all the elements that go into solving that problem, into accomplishing that task. And let's build around that. Um, once we translate that, you know, that whole thing to understanding the problem they're trying to solve, then we can build a process and we can propose a process. And the great thing about that is if you, in discovery, if you say, look, you're going to go here and you're going to go to this screen and you have a little mock-up, a little wireframe, and you're going to do this, this, and this, then this card window is going to pop up and it's going to tell you this, and then you're going to click this button and you're done. And they realize that you've just removed about 10 steps that they used to have to do and turned it into one or two or three, then 
they get it. It clicks. It works for them. They're excited. They're happy. They want that. Now, now when I started as a developer so many years ago, I'd like to call my method for development the seat of my pants method. You know, I just, I just try to solve the problem as is. Uh, was there, was there a certain, was it like a, a, a gradual, you know, movement towards process-driven development for you, or, or did you go through? Did you read about it? Did you, you know, how did you discover this whole thing? What did you do before? You know, I'm just curious about how this all developed in, in your mind. It's really evolved for me. I, I've done some reading on it, but fairly late in the game. Uh, it really came from some, you know, having to make up for some failures. You know, when you build something for a client and you're really proud of it and you're like, oh, all your data is right here and you're able to, you know, you go to the client, you click on the, the, the projects tab and you say, I want to add a new project. And then it takes you to the projects module. And then there's everything you need to know about the project. And you start putting in your data. And then if you want to know more about the client, like you want to contact them because you have a question about the project, you click on their name and it takes you back to the client module. And there's everything you need to know about the client. People are like, why are you doing this to me? And you're like, what? I just, I made it so easy for you. And, and, and they're like, no, no, you didn't. You, I've got to jump back and forth between these screens. And I'm going to lose my place or I don't have all the information at my fingertips. Now, if I want to go back and talk about their project, I have to go back to the project screen again. And I began to realize, okay, I am not putting this information together in a way that the client really wants to see it. And not just this client, not just the one who's bold enough to complain about it to me, but every client, if this is the way I'm designing things. And so I really had to start thinking about things differently. And it's a process. I'm not saying that I've solved it. Um, I'm saying that this is where I'm going. Um, this is this is uh, you know something that I pay a lot of attention to, and I'm trying to build processes around it internally to help you know keep all of that going. Um, you know, uh, so that's that's where I start looking at the process. Like, well, okay, what is the process? Oh, well, you're trying to do a new client intake and get a project rolling for them at the same time, and you're on a phone call with the client. Well, that's a whole different ball of wax right there. Now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build you a screen designed around that process. And I'm never going to ask you to leave that screen while you're talking to that client on the phone because that's too hard to do. I know that when, if I'm trying to move around in a piece of software and get something done at the same time that I'm trying to listen to or talk to a client, um, I fumble around. Even if I know that software, even if I wrote that software myself, I'm probably going to fumble around a little bit because it's too hard to divide your attention that way. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build them that screen that has everything they need to do that intake of a new client and get a project started because they're only going to go so far with all of those things, right? They're going to collect some essential information. You can only have somebody on the phone for so long. And uh, so, you know, that's just one example of process-driven design. So you have to define all of the processes you know, what, and, and what is the goal of each process and what are the steps in each process? And then you have to look at those steps and you have to say, okay, how many of those steps can I subsume into my software? And how many of them are not steps that should be done by the software, but instead should still be handled by a human. And let's just give them all the tools they need to make the best decisions. I, I often call that uh, figuring out their workflow. Would that be accurate to describe process-driven design? Well, that's, that's part of it for sure. Um, 
you know, uh, figuring out their workflow is an element of process driven design, you know, then finding out how to implement their workflow in a way that makes sense is the other half of it. And, you know, sometimes, uh, um, well, a lot of the time I build workflow diagrams. I, I love to build workflow diagrams actually, and then run through them with the user and have them confirm it. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll design a workflow diagram that's here's their workflow today. And then I'll design another one. Here's their workflow as I envision it happening, right? And then I'll run it by them and, and, and you know, compare them, you know, and usually the first one has a lot more boxes in it because there's many more manual steps in it. And then, you know, the, the new one will have fewer boxes in it because um, the system is automating a lot of the process. So then they get to see kind of, you know, what they're gaining by, by having us build this piece of software for them. So do you, so feedback would be an important part of this whole process driven design. Also, you, you actually don't wait for it to happen. You go out and, and solicit, I would assume. Yeah, um, I, I do. And, uh, and more importantly, uh, when we're building the software for our client, we try to get it in front of them as early and often as possible. Uh, so, you know, there's usually a little bit of lag time once we start building, when all we're doing is building tables and, you know, throwing stuff on layouts and it's ugly and, and incoherent and you can't expect anybody to look at it and have, have it make sense. But as soon as we get it to a point where it's starting to do what we want it to do, we get it in front of them and we, you know, there's lots of caveats that have to go with that, right? You have to say, you know, this isn't finished. This isn't what it's going to look like when it's done. You know, that part doesn't work yet. You know, um, you know, you have to really set their expectations, but um, once you get them in the right frame of mind and start showing them what you're doing, then, you know, you either get like, you know, their head exploding with, oh my God, I can't believe how great this is. Or you get, nah, you missed the mark there. And it's much better to, to hear that early. So, um, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to admit that sometimes, you know, we might completely miss the bullseye on these things and, and need to go back to the drawing board. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the process. Have you ever changed how a business works, how their workflow works, or, you know, the processes work to accommodate a better FileMaker solution, or is it the other way around? Um, yeah, I, I have done that. Um, but only if they recognize that their process could be better if it were changed. Um, sometimes these processes, sometimes these ways of doing things are a point of pride for the principal, and you have to be careful not to sound like you're denigrating, you know, this thing that they very carefully built. You know, this business they very carefully built or this process within the business. Um, and I also try not to assume I know better. Um, you know, getting back to that process, really understanding it from start to finish, from initiation to result is super important before you suggest that, oh, there might be a better way to do this. Um, I've been guilty of jumping the gun on that more than once. And, uh, it doesn't go well, you know, it just, it makes you look like a know-it-all. It makes you look like you are trying to impose your own experience over theirs. And that is definitely not what you want to do as a developer. You know, you have to understand their experience and, uh, and, and be sure that what you're proposing is going to be better. But yeah, we've definitely done it. Um, right now we're working with a, a mobile fleet management company. Um, and, um, you know, 
they've got this whole work order audit and billing process that's very, very specific and very complex. And, um, but, um, you know, we're finding that, you know, this way that they have to audit their work orders and then prepare them for billing, we might be able to just combine those things together um, and, you know, eliminate an entire very large step out of the process because we're going to be able to give them better answers and they're not going to have as many things left hanging for as long as, as they do now. Um, you know, their field workers are going to be able to do things in a much more automated fashion. So we're, you know, things are going to change for them quite a bit, but you have to be careful about introducing change into a company too, right? There's a whole, uh, industry that's been created in the last few years, um, called change management. Um, and it's all about helping companies that are going through change deal with that without collapsing. The larger the company, the harder changes to adopt. And one of the biggest uh, change agents is us, is what we do, is introducing new software into a company. You know, a lot of what we build at Alchemy is their enterprise systems. We're, we're automating everything about that company. And so there's a lot of people there who have a lot of concerns. And change management um, deals with uh, the, uh, um, excuse me, change management deals with the uh, emotional as well as the intellectual response to change uh, because people are afraid of change because for very specific reasons, they're afraid that they're going to look stupid when they can't figure out how to use the software. They're afraid that it'll make their job harder, not easier. They're afraid that they'll fail because of the new software and then they'll be blamed. Um, they're afraid that they'll become obsolete and get sunsetted out of the company, especially if they're older. Um, and so these are all things that you have to pay attention to all up and down the food chain within a company. You know, the CEO may, may want to drive everything ahead at a very high rate of speed. Sometimes you got to put the brakes on it a little bit and say, you know what, we need to roll this out in phases. We need to do this department by department so that as one department succeeds, then the next department hears about that success. And then they're more receptive and they're more open to the change that's happening. Um, you know, it's different for every company, but you know, if, if you're, if the change that you're instituting within a company is, very extreme, then you've got a tougher acceptance hill to climb with that company and with all the users that you're working with. And, you know, I'm sure you guys know from your own experience, it only takes one loud complainer to sink a project. It can happen. And uh, so you want, you really want to get everybody on board and make everybody feel comfortable with using your software and with, and, you know, and again, getting back to, you know, that process, you know, if they really understand that, you know, their process, if they know that you are really trying to give them their process only better, then they're a lot more on board with you than if you just generally say, oh, yeah, you just, you know, you're going to have a screen or a couple of screens or whatever, you know, that's not enough. Yeah, buy-in is so important. I've seen so many projects, not just FileMaker projects fail, but at projects at Claris when I worked there fail because they didn't get buy-in, they didn't get feedback, they didn't do all the things that you're talking about when they implemented a piece of software inside the company and it's interesting uh, to to look at that and 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 anybody who's listening right now should know that that bob is speaking from extreme wisdom here and uh, not everybody does the same things the same but you should 
realize that these are all things that that I I uh, you know agree with. Uh, I'm sure Michael agrees with uh, all this stuff too. I I, I want to give you another example. I, I, um, one of our clients is a costume manufacturing company, so they they make costumes. Um, size to fit for like dance teams and marching bands and stuff like that. They're, they're a, a national company and, and they've got a lot of people working for them. And, and when I first came to them, they had this giant folder, manila folder that traveled with each job. Now you can imagine in costume manufacturing, there's a lot of departments, you know, you got people who um, design, you got people who pattern, you got people who cut, you've got people who sew, you've got people who do the QC on all of that. And there's a lot of steps in between. There's, you know, there's material to be, uh, to be acquired and, and inventory to be managed and, and, uh, big machines to be dealt with. And, and so, um, they had this giant folder and it traveled with the job. And if you lost the folder, you lost the job, like forget it, <laughs> you know, you're, you're back to square one and now you're way behind deadline. Right. And, uh, and, you know, we built them this great system with this, you know, this reverse scheduler that looked at the deadline and then figured out what all the milestones, like what dates all the milestones needed to land on to get that job done. So they knew when to start it. That was a big cultural change for them. And, and uh, you know, a client portal for them to submit their orders and all kinds of great things. But um, we eliminated that huge folder almost completely. And but there was one piece of paper that was always in that folder that was very, very important. And it was called the pink sheet. It was printed on a pink piece of paper so that it would be easy to find in the folder. And it contained some critical information. I won't bore you with what was on it. We had to translate that into the system. And we ended up having a, uh, a section in the database called pink sheet. We just couldn't get away from it that was so embedded in their culture and in the way they thought about things that there was just no point in trying to give that a more reasonable name. You know, it was no longer pink. <laughs> There's nothing pink about it, but it's still a pink sheet. Now you mentioned before uh, that you have some tools you use when designing uh, from the process point of view. And uh, can you mention some of those for people who might be interested in getting in and following in your footsteps, what you, what kind of electronic uh, software you use? Sure. Um, I use OmniGraffle a lot, which is a Mac only app, I believe. It, um, I use that to document those workflows, um, to build those workflow diagrams. It's a great tool. It's been around for years. Um, uh, Balsamic mockups is something that I use. Um, it's a simple screen design tool. Um, you can build some pretty ugly wireframes with it if you're not careful. Even I mostly design things that I've actually had clients say, it's gonna look better, right? <laughs> uh, because you know it's, it's, it's fairly limited in its tool set, but um, it's a fast way to design a screen so that you can show it to your users and discuss it and approve them, and then also pass on to your developers when, when it's time to start developing. Um, Excel, of course, just, you know, document users and areas of responsibility and so forth. Um, we use monday.com, uh, which is great for assigning timelines, uh, assigning work and then, and then building timelines for the project. Um, and, uh, then of course, FileMaker we use extensively internally. Um, we've got a, a pretty good 
uh, internal system for documenting requirements uh, and for dividing them up into phases uh, and teams and designing the development process itself because it's not the same for every project. And, uh, you know, managing development time versus requirements to make sure we're not going over budget, uh, communicating those stats back to our clients. And I even, uh, uh, this is something I like to do uh, with FileMaker is I build infographics as PDF reports. Um, colorful, um, gives people the broad strokes as well as some detail. And I can send a client this, you know, nice, long, scrollable infographic that tells them, um, here's what percentage of the time was built was spent on your original build. Here's how much was spent on new work and scope changes. Here's how many hours were spent and what percentage for all these were spent on uh, bugs. Um, you know, and so it's all there right up front. It's showing them exactly where their money's going and where our efforts are going. Um, and uh, it goes a long way towards easing people's nerves because once again, everybody's been bitten by the bad software bug. And I can't tell you how many salvage operations I've done, which is what I call when, you know, a bad developer has completely screwed this client. Now I've got to come in and salvage, not what they built, but just salvage that client uh, to the whole idea of software, of, of, again, spending money on custom software. Because after all, custom software is never cheap, right? What we do is never cheap. It's always a stretch for not for every client, but for most clients, it's a stretch. And uh, so, you know, you're always, you're always selling to those clients. You never stop selling to those clients who have been burned. So you mentioned uh, Excel before, and I know that I need to go back and do a U-turn and come back to it because people are going to go, well, why wouldn't you always use FileMaker? Wouldn't it always be better? But I assume there's good reasons why Excel is a better tool in some maybe limited scenarios. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, you know, if, if, if I've got a client who uh, I want them to list out all of the different um, permissions, things in the system that we've designed for them, right? We're getting towards the end of development and now we've got to really pay a lot of attention. Sometimes it's earlier in development, but we've got to pay a lot of attention to who can see what, who can edit what, you know, all of those permissions. Um, you know, I'm going to build them a quick spreadsheet in Excel and, you know, I'm going to put the users or the departments or the type of user, user description, whatever it is, job title. And, uh, and then I'm going to put all of the different uh, permissions levels. I'm going to say put an X in the box where they can do that thing. And I'm going to send it to them. And it takes far less time to do that than it would to build something in FileMaker and have them log into it. And, you know, what, why bother? You know, it's Excel, you know, every app that's out there, that's popular, that's used widely, there's a reason why. There's a, there's a single thing that it does really, really well. And Excel you know, does that kind of table kind of thing in some ways better than FileMaker does. Yeah, it's, it's just about going beyond that, right? You know, use Excel for what it's best at doing, use FileMaker for what it's best at doing. You know, don't take it to where it shouldn't go. And, and knowing what those limits are is really important and using the tools at at your disposal is, is really important too. You just got to know what they are and, and use them accordingly to, to help you develop a, a better solution. Well, and that's become a lot of what development is about now, because, um, you know, if I go, if I go into a client's workplace and they say, I want to be able to have 
uh, digital contract signing and I want to be able to have uh, full accounting and I want to be able to have um, uh, inter-office communication built into my my uh, enterprise app that you're going to design for me. I'm, I'm not going to build all those things. I'm going to integrate with QuickBooks and I'm going to integrate with DocuSign and I'm going to integrate with Slack because each of those things that I just named, those apps do those things perfectly well. And, and they're single, you know, it's a single purpose for each one of those. Well, QuickBooks tries to do more than it should, but that's a whole other conversation. But, um, uh, you know, basic accounting is, is what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, why would I reinvent that wheel? Why would I waste my clients money and my time building something that I can just integrate with their API and be done? So, uh, you know, a lot of times that's, that's more what that's about for us is, is, you know, those, those apps that do one thing really well, making them work for us. Are there any resources that you can refer people to look more into this process driven scripting so they can find out more? Cause this will probably light some fires under, uh, under some people and they'll go, wow, I want to learn more about this. Where, where have you learned about this stuff, um, that you fi- have found handy? Um, you know, it's really been a matter, you know, matter Omnigraph I've used for years. God knows where I ever found that it's, it's been a part of my arsenal for a long time. Balsamic, um, honestly, that was somebody that FMDisk demonstrated that one day and I really dug it. Um, uh, FMDisk is by the way, now, um, recorded every meeting. So, um, you can find those online on the FM disc YouTube channel. And there's a lot of great tips in there. Um, as far as, uh, resources on process oriented design, uh, I don't have a lot of resources there. Um, I would say look up OmniGraffle if you want to document workflows, there's nothing better. Um, but it don't, again, it only runs on the Mac. So if you're windows based developer, um, you're going to have to find something along those lines. I would probably look at it and see what the features are and find something similar under Windows. I really don't know. Um, as far as, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I mentioned monday.com. Uh, it's a great timeline and, and project management tool. Fairly easy to learn. A um, little bit of a learning curve there. It's not that bad, though. And if you're managing a team of people, especially, even if you're just managing yourself and you want to make sure that you, you're introducing the right level of discipline into your work, uh, I think that's a useful tool. Um, uh, there's another tool that's great called Excaladraw, like Excalibur, but Excaladraw. Um, and uh, that is a web-based drawing tool. You can just kind of draw on the fly. So if you're meeting with your clients and you're trying to you know, document their processes or mock up a quick screen for them or something like that, um, it's a great tool that you can just, you know, kick these things out in a matter of seconds. Um, you know, you can draw a box, draw a bunch of lines in it, scribble in it, you know, with a, obviously with a pen on an iPad or something like that, or, or uh, a trackpad on a Mac. Um, uh and then those will save, and right? Then, so you can keep them for later. Yeah. Yeah. You can save them if you have, you know, you just have to sign up for a free account. It's all free. It's, it's a great, it's a great little tool. Yeah, Cause a lot of times what I'll use is a whiteboard when I go out to visit a client, but I ha- and I end up taking a picture of it, but this sounds like a, right. a nice, a nicer way to do it. It just, it's a no brainer. Just 
you know, draw it and it saves it and, and you can come back to it later. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how, how I use it. Um, and then, um, you know, it, it, as far as any other resources, I would recommend if you, if you're really interested in, in design, um, there's a, a company called Nielsen group. Um, and they, they're prolific in producing interesting design blogs, um, and, uh, or design blog articles. Um, and they're, they're fantastic. Nielsen group. Um, that's N I E L S E N, uh, look them up. They're, um, uh, really there's a lot of people at that company and, and they all write blog articles. So you get a lot of different perspectives. Um, the Apple design guides and the Google design guides are helpful in terms of giving you two slightly different takes on the way things should look in general. If you try to restrict yourself to just those guidelines all the time, you'll probably box yourself into a corner, but it's a good starting place for introducing some design discipline and in, into your, your work. Now, Mark wanted me to ask a question of you. Um, and I think you touched on one of these already, um, but you can repeat it, of course. Uh, he wanted to know if there are a couple of things uh, that FileMaker features, enhancements to it. What would those be? And I know you want to have web fonts included, right? So we got that one. That's certainly a great thing I never thought of, but I would definitely be behind you on that. Any other kind of things that you think are missing from FileMaker that just have to be there? You know, there's one thing that that I think is, this is another one of my pet peeves, you know, um, everybody's got them, but um, there's a, there's really idiosyncratic behaviors around the way multi-value value lists are handled between pop-up menus and drop-down lists in FileMaker. I really wish they would iron that out because it should be very, very easy for us to set up a value list where it shows the user the value and actually selects the ID related to that value and puts it into a field where we want it for the user. Um, you know, the two things behave very differently from one another and present their own set of challenges. And there's no reason why they couldn't be kind of homogenized to work the same way and to do it better while they're at it. So that that's an important one for me. Yeah, just uh, it, I have a client right now where it has to be a drop down list in the background and then a non editable pop up menu on the front because they like the way it looks, but they like the way the drop down list actually works. So it's uh, I see what you're saying there. There should be uh, you shouldn't have to do tricks like that to, to get things done. Exactly. I mean, you know, FileMaker's done a great job in the last, I don't know, decade, I guess, of, uh, of making it so we don't have to do as much of that kind of churn in everything that we do. Right. And, and, and smoothing some of that stuff out and, you know, and, and they had their own reasons for wanting to do it. You know, th their main reason for embarking on that venture was, uh, people are cluttering up their layouts with stacked fields and, and, you know, portals relationships to hide things, you know, where you break the relationship <laughs> to make it disappear. Remember that one, you know? Yeah. I was the one who presented at DevCon. About yeah. It. Yeah. You were, that's right. And, uh, um, uh, I still have a solution that has that feature in it. It still works. Yeah. Today. Yeah. So do I. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
you know, you know, and so they, they found ways to clean that stuff up for us and, and stop us from wasting our time doing that stuff. And, and they've done a great job of that. Um, they just haven't fixed everything yet. And I think that's one of those areas, the one I just named is, is one of those areas where they need to do that. Um, I think themes and styles needs another go around. Um, I think it could be a lot better. I think we need a, a way to actually look at those themes and styles and manage them without having to build our own sandbox on a, on a developer layout somewhere and, and, you know, keep that stuff, you know, we, we need some kind of a library where we can see what those things look like and, and, and work with them in a more intelligent way. Um, see those changes applied, you know, maybe even preview those changes to, to a particular behavior and, and, and aspect of a, of a, a style, um, you know, be able to, you know, if, if I save this layout's, styles to the theme, what is the effect going to be? You know, what are all the elements? What are all the objects that I'm going to affect? You know, you can, you can do some of that with some of the third party tools that are out there, but it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to do in a way that's meaningful. So, you know, I, I want to design entire themes and be able to, to know everything about those themes in one place. And I can't do that. Or, right or you have to get your eyeball right up next to the screen, right? So, you know, my pet peeve is that these days, most of the monitors I'm using, all the monitors using are 4k monitors and the inspectors, the, the figures, things in the inspectors are so small. I have to have a magnifying glass so I can read them. And it's like, it's ridiculous that I have to use a magnifying glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have something to look forward to because I'm at the stage where I'm just getting closer to the screen. <laughs> well, that doesn't work for me, John. <laughs> well, one of the byproducts of design being driven by the web, and, and you know, I'm going to go off on a tangent here a little bit, but, um, you know, design didn't used to be driven by things that happen in web browsers. Web browsers were where things went to get ugly. And, uh, you know, software was better looking than most web browsers at one point in time. And then, uh, you know, a lot of apps moved to the web, right? A lot of new apps appeared on the web, you know, um, software as a service became a concept. Uh, and, um, and the web suddenly became a lot more sophisticated. Some, you know, it was new versions of CSS and new ways of doing things. Um, you know, the whole, you know, the whole concept of, um, of uh, responsiveness where, you know, you can design a web page to work on an iPhone and on a, on a computer screen, etc. All of those things converged to make um, uh, the web become the driver for design. And now when we build in FileMaker, a lot of times what people are expecting to see is what they see on the web. So the way icons are used, the way, um, you know, various uh, things are done is, is according to the way they work on the web. And if FileMaker doesn't stick to that, if FileMaker doesn't give us some of what people are expecting, then they're falling behind. And I think that's why they need a director of design. That's why they need another Heather Winkle, um, because uh, they're, in, they're in danger of doing that. And so, um, you know, I really, I really want to see them take all of this to a much uh a much higher level um, to where we can really design great apps, uh, you know, great looking apps for our users. 
Yeah, I think anybody who uses FileMaker or any software program on a daily basis, they can easily point out ways that it can be improved. And and so can Claris cover every single one of these requests? No, uh, it's difficult. But yeah, we, we do these things to talk about, you know, what would make FileMaker better? And, and, and maybe those things, you know, a little you know, comment on, on this podcast might make it into the product. I remember uh, uh, several comments I've made uh, to developers, uh, engineers at, at Claris, all of a sudden the features in there, I'm like, wow, they do listen sometimes. Uh, so it's, it's important to talk about these things and, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to uh, improve FileMaker through our discussion. Uh, I agree, and and I think if you have something that's really um, you know that you have you have a feature suggestion that you really feel passionate about, and we start having DevCons in person again, um, you know, use those opportunities if you you know get to talk to the right person to uh, to let them know how you feel about that thing because it does make a difference. And I've had the same experience where you know I've, I've mentioned you know if you just do this this really simple thing, it would be hugely helpful. You know, and I mentioned something to Clay one time, Clay Mackle, and, and he, you know, next thing you know, it showed up. So I could see the wheels turning as I was telling it to him. You know? So I kind of had a feeling it might happen. But, uh, you know, yeah, things just, you know, um, you know, they're they're looking for ideas, too. They're, they're looking for ways to make the product better all the time. You know, it's, and sometimes what we suggest is low hanging fruit. Right. Right. N- now, you mentioned being excited about DevCon coming back, which I think a lot of people are, but a lot of people think that DevCon is dead or it's called Claris Engage now and it's going to continue to be virtual and spread out throughout the year. Uh, you know, do you really believe that DevCon is going to come back? Um, I think it is. I think they understand. I think Claris understands the value of it, that that human interaction is what has built that community. I mean, every not every, but, but many, many people who I've talked to who have been at FileMaker or Claris now or in the past has commented on how great the community was, how supportive everybody was of each other, how people shared information openly. And, you know, there was no, you know, jealous, you know, hoarding of uh, proprietary methods and so forth, you know, and, and how, you know, how great that is and, uh, and how they had never seen that in other, uh, software conventions or, or conferences. And, um, uh, I think that grew from people rubbing shoulders with one another, getting to know one another. I have many people who I consider real friends who I met, you know, through the FileMaker community and, and, and through, uh, DevCon itself. Yeah, it's a, it, is, it is a unique community. There's no doubt about it because the, the willingness to help others and to share share ideas. I mean, I, I don't know that you probably don't have any time, Bob, but there was a time when you used to be always answering questions on the forums and uh, almost, you know, it's like, wh- where does he have time to work? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, 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 I, I don't spend as much time on those forums these days because I just don't have the time. But, um, you know, I always really enjoyed um, the interactions that would take place there as well. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it is, you're right. It's just a unique community. And, and, uh, I really look forward to being able to get back 
to seeing them all in person again. Uh, it's always been very valuable to me. Yeah. And I think that's the gigantic difference between how a virtual conference and an in-person conference is. If you're in person, you're talking to people. It's, it's not just about getting the information from the sessions. It's about sitting down at lunch and meeting somebody who's doing the same thing as you. And it's, oh my goodness, how did that happen? You know, how do we meet up? I mean, you, you sit at the bar and, and somebody comes up and you start talking and maybe you guys have interest in something else. I mean, it, it just happens all the time and you just can't get that out of a virtual meeting. It's just not, never going to happen. So we talked to uh, Dave Speedy Knight uh, recently, uh, your, your uh, cohort in uh, FM Disc, if I can call it that. Um, and we talked a lot about FM Disc and how important it is for the community. You mentioned that there's now they're doing all the, the sessions virtually so you can get the information. They're all recorded. Do you have any favorite moments or anything you want to talk? Because I mean, I, I, I've, FM Disc is by far um, one of the best developer meetings I've ever been to. And I, if it wasn't so far away, you know, an hour drive, I would probably go uh, fairly often. And, and I'd say the same thing about Dig FM, which is even a farther drive for me. Do you have any favorite moments or things you want to say about it? Because uh, FM Disc, I think everybody should, should check it out. They really, and it's F-M-D-I-S-C. And if any information you want to give regarding how to get a hold of it, I just I want to promote FM Disc because it's it's about this whole thing about sharing information and and, and really sharing information at a fairly high level at this at this not a users group but a developers group. Right, and we've always made that distinction. But um, first, let me preface this by saying that um, anything that Speedy Knight told you about me back channel is not true. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, um, uh, yeah, Dave is, uh, D Dave is really the person who started FM disc. I think, um, you know, just, it was his idea and it started with just a few of us, you know, we called it bagels and bullshit and we all got together and there were like five of us. And, uh, you know, over the years he's continued to, uh, you know, help keep it moving forward along with a lot of us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will always, uh, I will always appreciate, um, that he had that idea back in the beginning and was able to make it happen. Um, but yeah, we, um, you know, I think the, uh, the important distinction is that we do call ourselves a developer group and, and we have always tried to keep the standards to a certain level. If someone comes in, who's a, you know, a rank beginner and is just trying to get a handle on what FileMaker is all about, we're not going to turn them away by any stretch. In fact, we really want to welcome them. Uh, and, and we'll do what we can to help them, but we're not going to curate the material to that person. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to have to catch up. Um, but, uh, you know, th that keeps the, the level of things very high. And uh, if, if you're interested in FMDISC, um, go to meetup.com and look it up, F-M-D-I-S-C. Um, uh, th that's the best entry point, I think, if you've never... Uh, experienced it before. Then you can get on our list for our, our meetings. You'll know when the next one's coming up. And uh, then, uh, you know, you can start attending. And also, I believe the link to the YouTube channel is there on that meetup page as well. If it's not, we should probably add it. So note to self. But, um, you know, you asked about favorite moments. Um, you know, it's been around for 20 years, more than 20 years. Um, so there's been a lot of great moments. Um, couple things that come to mind. Um, 
Phil Goodman doing magic as part of his presentation. Um, Phil Goodman is, uh, you know, he's a FileMaker developer and a longtime member of our group and, and also uh, an Apple ACN. Are there still ACNs or have they changed the acronym now? I don't know. But anyway, he's uh, a magician with Max as well. But um, he also is a member of the Magic Castle and, uh, and uh, an accomplished magician and has done some magic for us at meetings, which is cool. Um, uh, one of our members, Lynn Allen, her husband, John, uh, who's also a FileMaker developer, gave us a detailed analysis using a, a database he built of the language in Sherlock Holmes in order to prove that uh, many of the stories were, in his opinion, written by uh, um, the author's wife and not by him. By him. Uh, and he wrote a book about it called Shadow Woman, which you can also find on Amazon. Um, really fascinating stuff. Um, we've had a lot of visits from Claris, um, people from Claris coming and sometimes, you know, they've been asked some of the hard questions because our membership is not shy about doing that. Um, you know, and, and it's just been great. I, I've watched a lot of people grow as speakers, people who've never gotten up in front of a group and spoken before, including myself. Um, that's where I really learned to talk in front of a group. And, uh, it's a lot easier when you know everybody in the room. Uh, and, uh, so, I, you know, that's been exciting to watch people who were, you know, terrified, just suddenly become very comfortable with getting up there in front of everybody. And, and, uh, you know, just, there's an overall sense of camaraderie too with FM disc that I think can't be, can't be beat. It's, it's a great group. Yeah. I can't believe it's been 20 years. I, I, I didn't imagine it had been that long. Yeah. More than that. It's, it's been a long time we've been together. Yeah, I mean, how many users groups are around for that long? I don't know of any FileMaker user group who stays alive that long. And, and the fact is, it's just, you know, you guys keep it going with great content. Uh, and it, it just, it's unbelievable. And so I, if you can attend an FM disk meeting, I definitely recommend it. You will be worth your time. Now, Mark wanted to ask uh, a couple other questions. We're kind of winding down here. We, we've asked a lot of stuff of you, and you've been great and, and learned a lot of stuff. But I think Mark had a couple more questions. I want to make sure I get in there so he doesn't yell at me later. He's asking, what percentage of your day do you find yourself working in the business with customers versus working on the business? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know... It varies from day to day, so I'd have to average it out. But I would say I get to spend maybe, you know, I mean, I, I spend a certain amount of time on sales, and, and I guess that can count as working on the business, especially when I'm working with my marketing manager. Um, but um, I would say it's probably about 80, 20, 80 in the business and 20 on the business. Um, I'd like to shift that around. Um, you know, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to admit that, but, um, you know, I, I, I would like to shift that around to where I'm spending more time working on the business. Um, but you know, we're, we're small and, uh, I like to keep my hands in everything and make sure that it's all on an even keel. So that's, it's partly my choice to do it that way, I, I guess is what I'm saying. And Mark also, and I think you've kind of touched on this, but I wanted to kind of make sure it's really clear for people who are interested in what you're talking about. Uh, he says, uh, of all the aspects of developing solutions, using FileMaker, which you still develop, right? 
I, I do some. I, I don't do a lot. But you stay in 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 the knowledge of what FileMaker can do, and and you can never really get rid of how to do a set field or anything or write a calculation, I guess. But right. But yeah. So he says, uh, what aspect or, com or component do you enjoy most? Because there's actually a lot of uh, presence of companies out there who do absolutely zero FileMaker development anymore. Um, and so so that you yeah. do a little bit is is good good to hear. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times. Uh, the guys on my team will build, uh, they'll build something and they'll go, well, you know, I got everything on the page, but, you know, I, I don't think it's communicating things very well or, or, you know, I, I, you know, I can't quite figure out how to make this widget work, you know, in a way that's going to work for the users. I, I like to dig in on that stuff. I like to do design stuff. Um, you know, I, I like to, uh, um, uh, come up with ways to streamline the way things work on the screen. You know, uh, you know, one, one of the big transitions for me has been trying to go from a UI designer to a UX designer, because that's really, that's really where I'm going, including with the process driven design. Uh, and they're two different, distinctly different things. You know, a UI designer makes it look good. A UX designer makes it work good. And, and make it look good at the same time. So, um, you know, it's really a kind of a higher level of uh, interaction with the client and with the software itself. And so I'm spending more and more time looking at that, looking at that aspect of things. Very interesting. Uh, good. Yeah, that's probably where your time is best spent anyhow, right? You know, giving the user interface, the UI and the UX is, is, is all about a good experience for the user. So I, I think that's time well spent for you is, is the, you know, if you, if you only had limited time, you can work on developing a FileMaker, that would probably be the best area. You really have to check your ego at the door though. Um, you know, I, I get taken down a peg by my own guys all the time. You know, I'll, I'll design something. I'll be like, well, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they'll tell me like where it's, you know, it's not firing on all cylinders yet, you know, you need, you know, what about this thing? What about that thing? And, you know, I'll, I'll choose an icon. I'll be like, that icon doesn't say that action to me, you know? And, you know, and that's the level of detail we get into sometimes, right? Because, um, you know, it really does come down to, um, you know, choosing the right icon so the user knows they can click on it and get the result that they think they're going to get. Um, you know, color schemes, um, you know, I'm because I've got a fine art background, I know that I have a tendency to use color a little too much to convey meaning. And I sometimes have to get dialed back by someone, you know, either a client or, or, uh, you know, one of my people on my team, because they'll be like, wow, you know, that, that red just, you know, it gives the wrong message or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's all about communication. So if it's not sticking for somebody, it's just not sticking. And, and you've got to take that seriously, no matter where it's coming from. Sometimes my wife will walk in and look over my shoulder and go, what's that about? You know, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, she used to, she used to, she's an English teacher and she, in high school, and she used to, uh, um, teach the yearbook class. And she learned, she got like a crash course in design. She knew nothing about design. And sometimes she'll have design things that she learned doing that, that she'll bring to bear. And she'll be like, well, you know, this isn't flowing the way it's supposed to. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, I think Michael and I talk about this a lot about learning something new every day and being open to it. It's it's sometimes hard, but you got to do um, it. Yeah, I mean, you really you really have to be open to critique. You know, it's that's something that I learned. Actually, that's a skill that I learned when I was in art school because you, I mean, every assignment gets critiqued by the class and the teacher. So um, you know, art is communication. So when you put something out there and people are deriving entirely the wrong message from what you did, then, uh, you know, you have to decide, you know, have I failed here? You know, in fine art, you get to choose the, the answer, but, um, you know, cause sometimes an artist doesn't want to like explicitly communicate, but in, but in what we do, it's all about communication. You have to communicate correctly. So, um, if people just aren't, aren't latching on to what you are doing, you have to be able to accept that and you have to get a thick skin about it. And that's something that I learned a long time ago. Not that it's always easy. Some, you know, it's all, it's all a matter of how much of your own ego you've invested into it. If you build something all day long and you go, man, I nailed that. Wow. That's good. And then people start tearing it apart. That's hard no matter what. Yeah, my wife likes to tear apart my cooking all the time. I'm a, I'm a fairly accomplished home cook, uh, but uh, she always starts off with the criticism first. I prefer it say say something good about it, then give me the criticism. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because that's how the teachers always did it in art school too. Oh, good. Well, I'll have to send my wife to art school then. <laughs> so I think uh, we've we've talked about a lot of things here, um, and. It's been really informative and intriguing. Uh, what's the word you use, Michael? No, that wasn't the one I was thinking. There's some words you always use, but anyhow, it, it was it was a, a, an exceptional uh, time here. One of the the best interviews we've ever done because I didn't I didn't know you knew all this stuff, Bob. Well, I didn't know I knew it either. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, you know, <laughs> sometimes you don't get the opportunity to just brain dump like this. You know. Uh, all in one session right. uh, very often. Um, usually it's, you know, one thing or another. Uh, so uh, it's been fun. Well, that's how this whole thing got started, Bob. But John and I were, were talking, had a conversation. It was supposed to go for 30 minutes and it ended up being two and a half hours. And they said afterwards, we should just do a podcast. This was just <laughs> fascinating. That's great. You know, my, my, my only my only uh, thing that I'll say about it is uh, that's that's in any way a criticism is uh, I really imagine sitting by a fire with you know, glass of whiskey and uh, and uh, you know, kind of a you know crackling fire. Maybe you can put like a crackling fire sound in. Well, the it would be rather difficult since I'm in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need to throw a cigar in sure. there too. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you're not invited anyhow, Michael. So, <laughs> well, that's okay. Cause I'm not getting on the plane ever again. So, there you go. Right. <laughs> so we want to thank you for coming on uh, and spending some time with us. And, you know, it was, it was just, it was awesome. This is John Mark Osborne. Thanks for listening. We appreciate any feedback you want to give us. Email us. Put in the comments below. We read this stuff. We want it. We, we just talked about feedback. We want it on the podcast itself. And as I'm well. Michael Rashad, and this has been a fascinating conversation. I've been very quiet. I've just been listening intently and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. And Bob, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope you'll come back and talk with us again. 
Well, it's my pleasure. Um, thank you for having me on once again. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to know what my one takeaway is, use your grid. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.